Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. Today, I'm diving into a recent article that got so much attention in the New York Times. The article is by Sue Dominus, and it's entitled, Women Have Been Misled About Menopause. And boy, have we. I just thought this was one of the best things that I'd read in such a long time, and it's quite complex. So I'm going to get into some of the details about the study today, and then I'll put a link to it in the show notes below so you can read it. Really should be required reading for all women and gives you some information that you can take to your doctor to get the help that you need so that you can maximize your midlife experience and the second half of life. Hi friends and welcome to this week's episode. Today I wanted to dig into an article that unless you live under a rock, you most likely have seen it or been sent it by a friend or in my case, maybe a hundred friends. It was published in the New York Times about two weeks ago on February 1st uh, by Sue Dominus. And this is a really important article. If you have not had an opportunity to read it, I'm going to put a link to it in the notes below. But the article was titled, Women Have Been Misled About Menopause, which I just immediately gave a sigh of relief, like, thank the Lord, someone is actually talking about this in a national forum. This article got so much attention, which is really exciting. In fact, I've been talking to patients about it for the past two weeks. People have been bringing it into me, sending it to me. I did a really interesting Instagram live show with Stacey London. Now, you remember Stacey London from What Not to Wear, that TLC show that we all loved a few years ago. She was on that for quite some time as the hostess, along with her friend Clinton. And Stacy is now in the business of educating women about menopause, since she is also in our age group. She has a product line called State of Menopause. And just a little plug, she's also one of the hostesses who, along with me, is hostessing our incredible retreat at Miraval Austin from May 5th through the 8th. So if you go to my website, completemidlifewellnesscenter.com, there'll be a pop-up to give you information about that retreat. We do only have just a very few spaces left. So that was a little side note to talk about an Instagram live talk I did with Stacy about this because she was so excited about this article as well as her audience. And we had a really great conversation about all of the ins and outs that this has brought up for so many of us. And I'm still digesting it actually after a couple of weeks because it really speaks to as a menopause expert, all of the things that we've been talking about for so many years and we've been given so little validation. So read the article and I'm going to go through some of the key points with you because I think Sue Dominus did an amazing job uh, as an author, had to be very careful and cautious and scientifically correct, which of course we want. In my opinion, she didn't quite go far enough with fleshing out all of the drama around what we mistakenly learned 20 years ago from that dreadful study called the Women's Health Initiative. But I think she did a really good job. So I'm not going to criticize it at all, but I will bring up some of the most important points to talk about. And then also some of the points that might be something for further discussion that maybe were not mentioned in the article, but are really important things that we could talk about as well. So Yeah, when you read an article called Women Have Been Misled About Menopause, that's a pretty powerful statement. And she goes into a lot of detail about what happened in our history as women 
back in 2002 when the big study that most of us have heard about now called the Women's Health Initiative Study was abruptly stopped in July of 2002. And like many of the doctors mentioned in this article, I literally remember exactly when I heard that information because it was one of those such life-changing events for a gynecologist. So in that respect, somebody like myself, who's been practicing since before 2002, now I graduated from residency in 1999. So in 2002, I was a very young doctor, but I had been taught all of my career that estrogen was not only safe, but an improved health in a number of ways. Before the Women's Health Initiative study, there was so much evidence that estrogen reduced the risk of osteoporosis, heart disease, cognitive change, of course, improved sexual function. So many of those things were known, and we were prescribing estrogen at that time, mostly in the form of Premarin. Now, that's all we had at that time, and yes, it's a terrible, awful option now. We have much better options. Um, you might know Premarin is a type of estrogen that's derived from pregnant horse's urine, so pregnant mare's urine. They didn't really even try to hide the name in there. Uh, but at that time, uh, when I was an early practitioner and then until you know the last 10, 15 years or so, that was still a very widely prescribed prescription. And in this big study, which was a massive study funded by the NIH, it cost tons of millions of dollars. They had several groups of women. Uh, one was taking just Premarin because as you might remember from all our conversations, estrogen increases the risk of uterine cancer. But in that day and age, it was thought that patients who'd had a hysterectomy did not need anything except estrogen. So the Premarin group were all patients who had had a hysterectomy. Okay, so there was that group, and then there was a secondary group that took a combination of Premarin with a nasty, awful chemical called Provera that we never prescribe anymore because it has such awful side effects, but it reduces uterine cancer risk. So in the early days of hormone replacement, women were just given estrogen. And then, you know, back in the 1960s, that everybody was feeling great about that, but then it was discovered some years later that there was an increased risk of uterine cancer because estrogen stimulates the uterine lining. So we know since then that when we use estrogen, we need to use some type of progesterone. Now progesterone, there's only one, that's bioidentical plant-based progesterone. But in that particular era, back in the 2000-ish time, we were using this chemical called Provera, simply for reducing uterine cancer risk. It had no other benefits. In fact, it had a nasty bunch of side effects, but it did prevent uterine cancer. So there was a group taking Premarin only and another group taking Premarin and Provera, the women who needed uterine cancer prevention. Okay, so that's how it was set up. And the authors were looking for several really important and potentially life-threatening diseases. Breast cancer, blood clot, heart disease, stroke. Those were the big ones. And then lots of trickle-down studies based on that data set have been done since then, but breast cancer, blood clot, heart disease, stroke were the things that they were looking for. Now it's pretty well known now in retrospect that the authors had a preconceived idea of how they wanted this to turn out which is a complete no-no in statistics and science. We need to go into a study blind as to what we want the outcome to be so that we're not tempted to manipulate statistics and data in order to achieve our goal. That's just a very basic ethical principle of doing any type of scientific research. Now, this group of researchers, or at least some of them, had a preconceived idea and wanted to see an increased risk in blood clot, heart disease, stroke, and breast cancer. And because the study was only designed to last eight years, how were they going to see that? Well, they had to recruit an older group of women. If they had recruited women who were 45 to 55, and they had run the study for eight years, they would have seen no problems whatsoever. In fact, they would have seen a lot of benefit because in a younger, healthy group of patients, 
totally different than the group that they put together for this study. So because they wanted to see outcomes like blood clot, heart disease, stroke, breast cancer, things that occur more frequently in older patients, the average age patient in the study was 63. That's the average age. And there were obviously a lot who were a lot older. And they also didn't restrict participants from having had a prior heart attack, smoking, obesity, a lot of things that do not apply to me and you. So a lot of things happened. They continued the study and then the researchers had a meeting and decided to stop the study early to not continue it because they felt that the risk of breast cancer was too high to ethically continue the study. Well, Unfortunately, that was reported all over the world on the front page of Time magazine here in Houston and the Houston Chronicle. It was all anybody could talk about because the numbers were presented in a way that sounded very scary. So when we're talking about statistics, if you want to generate a certain response or feeling in the listener that you're sharing your statistics with, you can manipulate them many different ways to achieve the goal that you want. So for example, if you said, as one of the authors did on TV shows right after this happened in July of 2002, that breast cancer was increased by 22%, that sounds terrifying, but without the caveat that that is the smallest increase in real numbers. So for a patient aged 50 to 60, the baseline risk of getting breast cancer would be 2.3%. And if you increased it by 22%, it would go up to 2.8%. It's really a negligible increase. But because it was presented in a way that sounded very scary, I mean, you could have a 100% increase in something if the incidence was 1 in 10,000, it would go up to 2 in 10,000. So we've got to be really careful when we're looking at presentations and statistics to look at the real numbers and see if that, does that really make a difference or not? Well, if you played the devil's advocate and even believed that that was true, that the incidence of breast cancer was increased by a tiny bit, which is often considered not to be even statistically significant, that was only in the group of women who took that combination of drugs that we never use anymore, Premarin and Provera. So it was not the Premarin that caused the problem, it was the Provera, which we do not use anymore. Interestingly, the group of women who only took Premarin, now we don't use that anymore either, but that's just estrogen, had a decreased risk of breast cancer, but that did not get very far in the news because nobody likes to hear good news. We all like to be excited by scary news, or at least that seems to be what happened. So this myth, that has been perpetuated ever since then and continues to be perpetuated by many physicians as well as lay people. The myth that hormones increase the risk of breast cancer, that is a very broad and uninvestigated statement. <laughs> so Premarin and Provera increase the risk of breast cancer a tiny bit after five years or longer of use. That is a little bit more than just saying hormones cause breast cancer. And in fact, estrogen only, or now we know estrogen with progesterone, has no increased risk of breast cancer after any period of time, as far as we know. So lots of issues were brought up in this article that are really important to dig into. First of all, they were using drugs that we don't use anymore. We know that estrogen given by mouth does increase the risk of blood clotting. And that could be a blood clot in your leg that travels to your lung. It could be a blood clot in your heart or even a stroke. We know that from years ago, way before 2002, we knew that even young women taking birth control pills could occasionally have those types of events because when we take any kind of estrogen, whether it's Premarin or bioidentical estradiol or any other kind you can think of, if we take it by mouth, it takes a first pass through our liver, and our liver does lots of critical things, including making blood clotting factors. So that path can be disrupted, and although that's extraordinarily rare, 
there is a minuscule increase in blood clotting events when patients take estrogen by mouth. And as those of us in the business have known for a long, long time, and Sue mentions in her article, when we use estrogen in a non-oral form, like a patch, a pellet, cream, an injection, anything that isn't a pill, that blood clotting risk disappears. There is no increased risk in blood clotting when it's not given orally. So most important, well, there's several most important things. One of the most important facts that this very good article brought to light to remind those of us who might have forgotten was that this study used drugs that we do not use anymore, including oral estrogen that is not bioidentical, the kind that comes from horse urine. Nobody should use that anymore. Uh, it is actually still on the market, which just shows the power of drug companies, but it's a, a very inferior product. And Provera, I would not give to my worst enemy because we don't need to use Provera. We can use bioidentical plant-based progesterone. And so when we use estrogen in that manner, which is the current standard of care, transdermal bioidentical estradiol, not oral premarin, and bioidentical progesterone to prevent uterine cancer, as well as all the other benefits that we know about, like improving sleep, moods, making your cycle lighter if you still have one, Lots of soft things are improved by progesterone and it prevents uterine cancer, which is a cool little side effect. When hormones are given that way, we don't see these risks, even though the risks in the study were minuscule, we don't see them with the hormones that are currently prescribed. So different drugs and then a completely different patient population than the majority of you who are listening today. So. What happened when those risks that have been argued by many as being not even statistically significant were brought up and were announced in press conferences and then headlines everywhere said hormones cause cancer, hormones cause blood clot, heart disease, and stroke. They forgot to mention that the average age patient was 63 and most of the patients in that study had a host of health issues that you and I do not have. So applying that logic to a 45 to 55-year-old healthy woman like me and many of you makes absolutely no sense. But unfortunately, after 2002, these headlines were presented and doctors read them and patients read them and very few people read the fine print underneath. In fact, the fine print wasn't even published in order for anybody to read it for quite some time after that. So we were left with this high level misunderstanding, like one short sentence without the paragraph that explains all the caveats around it. And as a result of that, 20.5 years now, not quite 21 years, but we're getting there. More than 20 years later, because many doctors didn't know anything about hormones or actually half of practicing OB-GYNs did not start their practice until until after 2002. So they never knew anything else. They, they were raised and grown in this culture of hormones are dangerous and they never took the time to learn anything else or just believed what they were told or all of the things that human beings do. Whereas somebody like me and my colleagues who were, you know, say 52 or older, had some years of practice before the Women's Health Initiative. So I knew from my previous education that this isn't the whole story. Hormones are really good for us. And we've known that for so, so long. So this cannot be true. So I continued prescribing hormones, whereas many or most doctors just stopped. Now, I'll tell you something that did happen. We were scared as physicians. There was a lot of rumors about, well, if you prescribe hormones and then the patient gets breast cancer or has a heart attack, you're going to get sued. And I grew up in a very strongly fearful of litigation community because that was before we had tort reform in Texas and lawsuits could be life-threatening, life-ending for the physician. So there was a lot of fear of litigation that led doctors to stop prescribing hormones, even though we knew in our hearts that they were safe. There was a time in the you know, time between 2002 and maybe 2010 where we made patients sign a consent form 
Now, I, I knew that the hormones were safe, but to save my own self from being bankrupted by a lawsuit, because breast cancer happens, blood clots, heart disease, they happen, and they could certainly happen in a patient who's taking hormones, doesn't mean they're causative. Stacy and I were talking about this too. If someone has something and they have something else, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're related. Point being, just because one thing happens and another thing happens doesn't mean they're causative. And that is the case with this discussion about hormones. But nevertheless, back to my litigation fear at that time, we would have patients sign a consent form saying, yes, I will give you hormones, but I understand that I might die from breast cancer, blood clot, heart disease, stroke, and I'm not going to sue you if that happens. Crazy, right? I mean, that is what the media did to our brains as physicians, that we were scared and we were not giving patients what they need. And so, yes, women have been misled about menopause. That's a very good title. And so have doctors. People have been misled about hormones by this study and the ongoing trickle of just misunderstanding about what the study found. So we've got a drug that we don't use anymore. And the part about <laughs> permarin, estrogen, not increasing the risk of breast cancer, actually, it decreased it slightly. Nobody talks about that very much, do they? Because, you know, we love to have more dramatic stories. <laughs> Good news doesn't travel far. And then the second part is it was a very unhealthy, older group of patients that does not apply to the average patient who's thinking about starting on hormone replacement. So those are the two most important caveats, I think, for us all to understand about this study and all of the drama that has ensued since it was published. So what the author really points out that you and I both already know is that menopause, perimenopause, the whole time of life where we're becoming hormone depleted, we're losing out estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, is not a small thing. Now there's 5% of women who pass through it without noticing. I'm a little skeptical, honestly, because for me it was like being run over by a truck, but the average patient has significant symptoms that could range from you know, the common hot flashes and night sweats that we think about, and, and they're sort of talked about in a comical way, like, oh, she's just being hormonal or what have you, but they can be debilitating. They can ruin your sleep. They can be embarrassing. We sweat through our clothes. They cause a lot of anxiety. And there's ongoing research that she mentioned in her article about how hot flashes may indicate that there are other things going on as well. Patients with significant hot flashes and night sweats actually have a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease and certain cognitive disorders, including dementia and Alzheimer's. So the hot flashes are a symptom, but they're also associated with other more significant perhaps, even though that's very significant, more significant health problems that can be helped with estrogen. So maybe you're moody, maybe you're gaining weight, maybe you are yelling at your kids or feeling like you're crawling out of your skin or lost your desire for sex or have pain so that you can't have sex. All of these things are so common, as well as other things like joint pain, headaches, memory loss. I mean, the host of symptoms is remarkable. And the treatment for those symptoms is so simple, proven by science to be not only safe, but reduce the risk of some very important diseases when we get older, osteoporosis, heart disease, diabetes, probably Alzheimer's if it started early as well, not to mention sexual dysfunction, general well-being, sleep, depression, anxiety, the list goes on. So the, the treatment for these symptoms is so widely available and so easy to prescribe, yet many women are not being offered it, even in this day and age. And the article points out what we have discussed before, which is that physicians, even gynecologists, now especially gynecologists, right? Like if you have a question about menopause, one would assume that going to your gynecologist would be the best way to get really good information. Meh. <laughs> no, it's unfortunately not true. Doctors get no education about menopause. In fact, she highlights, especially younger doctors, after the Women's Health Initiative, 
there were no menopause classes given of any sort because the idea was, well, there was no treatment for this problem. We've proven that the treatment's dangerous. So what's the point in even talking about it? So if you see a gynecologist who's, say, 45, who graduated after 2002, never learned anything about hormones, unless she's a female who's going through these symptoms herself and has been jettisoned into having to learn about it for her own sake, like that's what happened to me. <laughs> I'm 55 now, but oh boy, there's nothing like having those symptoms yourself to push you into doing some really quick education about how to make yourself feel better and then hopefully pass it on to your patients. But if you're seeing someone younger, they know nothing about hormones, most likely, unless they have taken some of their own uh, postgraduate education. And now doctors of my age group, many continue to prescribe hormones. And so doctors in their 50s and 60s often will say, well, I never stopped prescribing hormones. I knew they were safe. I, I didn't trust the data from the Women's Health Initiative, and it really didn't change my practice. But what it did change is that patients would come in not wanting the treatment because they had been told, and I still hear this today, every day, well, what about cancer? Uh, you know, so let's talk about my average patient who's you know miserable and requesting help. And I'll be very willing to offer her bioidentical estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone if she needs it. Her symptoms will completely disappear, but almost without exception, unless it's a very, very educated patient, I'm going to hear, well, but doesn't it increase my risk of breast cancer? Don't I have to get off it after five years? Don't I have to stop it when I'm 60? All of these questions that are derivatives of misinformation from the Women's Health Initiative study. We should not be quoting anything from that study anymore. But unfortunately, because it's one of the biggest sources of information about hormones, people do still quote from it regularly. I think it needs to be thrown out and we never need to quote from anything from that study because the whole entire study was in my opinion, and many others agree, misdesigned, misinterpreted, marketed very inappropriately, and then left women with really no options but to just feel terrible and then develop a number of actually quite preventable diseases as they get older. So 20 years ago, the majority of women decided to stop taking their hormones or they were no longer allowed to get the prescription from their doctor because the doctor said no. I'm going to talk to you about that again in a minute. And so that cohort of women is now, just say they were 50 or 60 at the time, now they're 70 or 80, and we're seeing a really big uptick in osteoporosis, dementia, heart disease, of course, sexual dysfunction, all of the things that that group of women had to suffer through. I think we owe it to them. They were our lab guinea pigs, so to speak, of what happens when you don't take hormones and it's not good. And none of it is good. So another couple of really important things. I mentioned the idea about doctors saying, you can't have this. That really puts a bee in my bonnet. Doctors should not tell patients what they can and cannot do. In my opinion, that is not our job. That's a very paternalistic idea. My job is to educate you and to tell you the pros and cons through the best of my ability, and I better be educated before I start telling people the pros and cons of hormones. And most people are not, by the way. They'll tell you old information. If you're not sure, you could ask your provider, you know, thank you for telling me that I can only take hormones for five years. Can you point me to the research that gave you that fact? It's not a fact. <laughs> Remember, that statement that is still reported so frequently, and there's lots of them, but here's a common one. You cannot take hormones for more than five years because the risk of breast cancer goes up after five years. Okay, well, there's so much missing from that. The risk of breast cancer in the Women's Health Initiative study that is 20 plus years old and used drugs that we do not use anymore in an older population who are very unhealthy, the risk of that group of patients getting breast cancer increased by a minuscule amount after five years. That's, that's the appropriate way I would phrase that. And the group of patients who did not take Provera, which is a drug that we never use anymore, 
actually had a decreased risk of breast cancer. And they were not your age, and they were not taking a drug that you're being offered. So if someone tells you something very specific, like you can only take it for five years, we need to dig into where did they get that information and how was it misconstrued? And that's exactly what happened, the way I just described it. Another really common thing that we hear, and it's actually in this article, this is one of the, I'm not gonna criticize it because it's a brilliant article, but one of the things that I think could have been a little bit more clear is she refers to uh, this frequently stated piece of information that we cannot start on hormones if we've been more than 10 years past menopause, the so-called 10-year estrogen window. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. That has been expounded way past what any facts would support to have doctors make statements like, you cannot take hormones after you're 60. I hear that one all the time. You have to stop them when you're 60. Some even add, because of the 10-year estrogen window, which is such a misunderstanding of what that means. Okay, so first of all, that's assuming you went through menopause when you were 50, which is a huge assumption. And secondly, it's going back to that poor data from the Women's Health Initiative study. What they found was that when women started on hormone replacement, of the kind that we don't use anymore, when they had a whole bunch of underlying health problems, the women who started on hormone replacement when they were after 60 years old had a small increased risk of blood clot, heart disease, and stroke. And if you looked at the women in that group, I am not in the least bit surprised. In fact, I'm surprised it wasn't a higher risk because these really unhealthy women in their 60s and older were taking oral estrogen, which we know causes blood clotting, including things like stroke. We know that already. We knew that before 2002. So if you're a really unhealthy 63-year-old, you do not want to start taking oral estrogen. Well, who would give that to you anyway? <laughs> well, some people might, but we already know that estrogen should be used in a transdermal manner, and then the risk of blood clotting is not increased. So lots of just misunderstanding of those type of statements like, you can't take it when you're over 60. That's just wrong on so many levels. The Women's Health Initiative study did not look at giving hormones to a woman, say, 50, 45 to 50, when she started having symptoms, and then continuing on them long term. So that woman does not have to stop taking hormones after 10 years or after 20 years or at some imaginary time. That's a whole different question, taking hormones from the onset of menopause or within the first five years, because we don't want some of the things to happen that are going to already take place in those first five years, like some bone loss, some cognitive decline, vaginal dryness, some changes in blood vessels of the heart. Those things are already going to be starting to take place in those first five years. So yes, ideally we want to start hormone replacement within the first five years, or at least 10, which is how this 10-year estrogen window idea became so widely discussed. So yeah, ideally you would start on hormones within the first 10 years of menopause, and then you would take them forever if you chose to, because if you stop your hormones when you're 70 or any other age, that's right when the risk of all of those diseases is starting to go up. So that would be the absolute worst time to stop the hormones. So this idea that you have to stop them is incorrect. The only reason to stop taking hormones is if you have a very unusual situation like a breast cancer that's estrogen receptor positive yourself. During the time of treatment, it would be wise to stop taking estrogen, but there are still other hormones like testosterone that you can take. And then you could probably get back on the estrogen at some point in the future. So don't believe anybody who tells you you can only take it for five years. You can't take it when you're over 60. You have to stop it at some certain period of time. That is all misconceptions of this already flawed information. Don't let your doctor make any decisions for you based on the data in this study, period. Now, later data has been much more reassuring. So for example, we've learned through lots of studies that transdermal estrogen, not by mouth, does not increase the risk of blood clotting events. So check that box. 
we don't have to worry about that anymore. Now, of course, those things happen whether or not we're on hormones, but there's zero evidence that the risk is increased. So we can just stop talking about that now. It's just not true. It doesn't matter what age you are. Those diseases occur, but they are not increased when we take hormone replacement if it's not given orally. So that was some great news. And then digging into this whole question about whether hormones cause breast cancer, even in the Women's Health Initiative study, estrogen does not cause breast cancer. Now, if you've got breast cancer, it will certainly make it grow more quickly, but there's not one study ever done, ever, even by the biggest naysayers out there that showed that there was an increased risk in death from breast cancer. So I'm not suggesting that getting breast cancer is acceptable. Now we don't want it, although one in eight of us will get it in our lifetimes. If we're getting regular screening, it's almost without exception caught in stage zero or stage one and it's totally treatable. So even in the Women's Health Initiative study, when they saw a slightly increased risk in breast cancer, very, very slight in the group of women taking Premarin and Provera, which remember we do not give anymore, and they were an average age of 63, which isn't me or you. In that group of women, they had a few more cases of breast cancer, but there was no increased risk in metastatic breast cancer or death from breast cancer. So isn't that the end point that we're all scared of? Now, I'd rather not get breast cancer, but we're not going to die from it. That being said, providing we get regular screening. It's extremely unlikely to die from breast cancer if we get regular screening. So I'm not suggesting we forget about breast cancer. I'm suggesting that we look at the data and we know there's a reduction in some very significant diseases that are much more likely to kill us than breast cancer, like heart disease, osteoporosis-related injuries, Alzheimer's-related injuries, or just general poorness of quality of life. So taking estrogen is an option. No evidence that it causes cancer, so long as you don't take Provera. It actually reduces colon cancer. The progesterone reduces uterine cancer. Testosterone has actually been shown in many studies to reduce the incidence of breast cancer. So we're looking at several cancers that are actually reduced. Longer lifespan, improved health span. So this is what women have been misled about. And she did an excellent job of sorting that all out for us. So again, the takeaways, and please read this study. Every woman should read it. It's really important to read. And when you read some of the numbers that she quotes, remember she is quoting from the Women's Health Initiative study. And we've got to keep that in mind. She's quoting from the study that we all, including the author, agree was very poorly misunderstood. So here are my key takeaway points. The Women's Health Initiative study is a useless piece of rubbish. Peter Atia, who I love, he's got a very, very good podcast on health and longevity. He's a very, very incredibly intelligent doctor. Described it as the worst piece of research ever published for women's health, and I agree with him on that point. So throw away everything from that study. Do not make any decisions based on that study. And ask your doctor what information they are using to tell you things like, you can't take hormones. You have to stop them after five years, yada, yada, yada. Okay, and then find a doctor who's willing to talk to you about it. The other thing that she pointed out so well, as I mentioned, is that doctors are not educated about hormones. Some of them are still very scared of litigious patients who might sue them if they have one of these things happen. But you know, we've got to move out of that culture and just do the right thing so that women can feel better and improve our longevity and health span. So key points I mentioned, drugs we don't use anymore, population that was unhealthy, that does not represent the great majority of us. And then all of these made up ideas about how long you can take it, when you have to stop it, all of these things are based in ideas from a study that has now been pretty much debunked. The useful thing that we got out of that study was just uh, put a bomb under us as women to really look into what we can do better. So I'm grateful that the study was done. I say that with a little tongue in cheek. I'm grateful it was done and I'm grateful that we're almost at the end of 
its mercy, as to, so to speak, is the power that has had over physicians all of these years to not take this seriously for women and to just leave us with no options and to not even discuss it in the doctor's office, which is described really well in the study when you read it. You, you will recognize yourself, I suspect, when she talks about patients who go to the doctor and ask about hormones, or maybe they're afraid to even ask about hormones because the doctor doesn't even give them a space to ask those questions. They're not given a questionnaire about menopause symptoms. The doctor doesn't ask them about their symptoms. In that little 10 to 15 minute moment where you could get some really good information, the doctor's just talking over you because they really don't want to talk about hormones because they probably don't know much about it and they don't have time to get into the nuances of it, which really takes 45 to 90 minutes because that's how long my visits are an hour and frequently longer to really get into the nuances of what the best hormone replacement is and all of the information about the current studies and things like that. You cannot achieve that in 15 minutes. So because most of us don't have the resources to go to a concierge type doctor and spend an hour with them. Now, I wish you did. And then please come see me or other women who are equally passionate about hormones. And you can try to find one through the North American Menopause Society website, menopause.org. And I will just warn you, when you're looking at that list, it's very, very easy to be a NAMS member, North American Menopause Society member. You just pay $300 and you're a member. It doesn't require any proof of education, but there's a higher level of provider called a North American Menopause Society practitioner. So you want to look for that extra letter at the end because those providers like myself and many of my colleagues have actually proven that they are educated about hormone replacement and other issues to do with menopausal health because you got to take a pretty darn difficult test and do a lot of reading. So look for that practitioner certification and hopefully you'll find somebody who's willing to have this conversation with you. And because most of us use insurance and we're stuck with this little 15 minute window, my advice to you is to be your own advocate. Go online or I'll actually provide you with a list below of menopause symptoms. Check that off. Take it into your doctor and say, yes, I have hot flashes. I have night sweats. I've got mood swings. I'm gaining weight around the middle. I have joint pain. Whatever your other symptoms might be. I've got vaginal dryness. It hurts with sex. If you hand that to him or her, We've got to believe there'll be some kind of conversation. And if there's not, it's time to just walk out the door and find somebody else. Because in most offices, you're not going to be asked those questions. Now, in my office, we're going to ask you all those questions. <laughs> we're going to ask you lots of questions so that you don't have to be responsible for bringing that up. But it is a sad fact that in this day and age, you are very likely going to have to be responsible for bringing it up. And furthermore, if you've read this article and listened to some of these videos, you know way more about it than they do. So you've got to come at it in that way and probably ask for what you want. You know, doctors are busy. Uh, they're more than happy to give most patients what they want, which is why there are ads on television for drugs that they want patients to go and ask for. And most doctors are so overworked and I'll just say some of them are lazy that they will just say, okay, and write your prescription for anything. So that's why TV advertising for drugs, I think, is so unethical. But if you go in to the doctor and say, okay, I've read all about this. I'm very educated. I've been watching videos. Could I please have an estradiol patch and some progesterone at night? They're probably going to say yes because they don't want to fight with you and they're just ready to get on to the next patient. Another option is some online resources. Uh, there are several companies that do this now where you can actually do telemedicine and get a hormone prescription. Uh, Alloy, A-L-L-O-Y, is one of them that's got a lot of media attention, and there are others as well. Now, I don't think this is the most ideal situation because you're literally going online, filling out a form, answering a text message with a provider for just a few minutes, and then you're getting a prescription. But it's a whole lot better than nothing. So I really applaud these companies for offering that as an option because so many women are just completely dismissed when they go to see their doctor. So plan A would be that money grows on trees and you can come and see me or somebody like me and we'll spend an hour and we'll get everything perfect and we'll check your hormones and really come up with a customized plan for you. That may not be practical for so many reasons. I understand that. Plan B would be 
write down a symptom checker of all the things you're experiencing, go to your doctor and just be forceful and tell them, this is what's going on with me. I've read all about it. This is what I want. Can you please prescribe it for me? Very likely that'll be successful. If for some reason that is not successful, go online, alloy, A-L-L-O-Y.com or some similar other websites that offer telemedicine help for menopause and you can get hormones that way. But it's no longer okay just to say, oh, too bad. You're just getting old. You're going to have to put up with these symptoms. One of my favorite parts of the article is right in the beginning. She actually compares like, on what planet would this be acceptable if we were talking about men? It wouldn't be. I'm actually going to read this because it's quite funny. Um, you know, we talk about this quite a bit, but the, the idea that men and women are equal is still unfortunately not close to true. Um, so she says this. I'll just read it to you. This prompted me to contemplate a thought experiment, one that's not exactly original, but it's nevertheless striking. Imagine that some significant portion of the male population started regularly waking in the middle of the night drenched in sweat and endured that for several years. And then imagine that those men stumbled to work exhausted with low morale, tearing off their jackets during meetings, excusing themselves to gulp for air by a window, and imagine that many of them suddenly found sex to be painful and that they were prone to urinary tract infections. Their penises got dry and irritable and even showed signs of atrophy. <laughs> imagine further that many of their doctors had received little to no training on how to manage these symptoms. And when the subject arose, sometimes reassured their patients that this process is just natural and that should be consolation enough and they should just put up with it. Now, imagine that there was a treatment for all these symptoms that doctors often overlooked. For men, <laughs> that scenario seems so unlikely and yet it's a depressingly accurate picture of menopausal care for women. There is a treatment, it's hardly obscure, it's known as menopausal hormone therapy, eases all of the symptoms that were mentioned, and decreases the risk of diabetes, protects against osteoporosis, helps a collection of symptoms, including UTIs, pain during sex, that affects nearly half of postmenopausal women. So I just thought that was so comical in kind of a tragic comedy sort of way. There's not a chance that if men were going through these things that it would be acceptable, which brings me to this next quote that I thought was absolutely spot on that says, all of this suggests that we have a high cultural tolerance for women's suffering. It's just not regarded as important, right? So here we are. And we have an option to do something different. We've been told for 20 and a half years that our symptoms are not important enough to worry about, that 10 to 15 minutes in the doctor is enough. You cannot have this treatment that is known to be completely curative of all of your symptoms. And I can tell you what, I do not like being told that I can't do something. <laughs> you guys might share that. Think about this. Your average doctor would have no problem prescribing you a host of drugs that have all of that fine print about all of the ways they might kill you, right? The TV ads for antidepressants or erectile dysfunction medication or stomach acid treatment or glaucoma treatment or you name it. All the people are running through a field happily with their Labrador. And then at the end, it's like symptoms include blindness, death, heart disease, shortened life, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right? All of these drugs have an incredible number of very significant side effects, and doctors have no problem prescribing those to you. In fact, many things you can get from Walgreens are much more dangerous than hormone replacement could ever be reported to be. You can kill yourself with Tylenol way more easily than you can with estrogen. So we've got to start thinking what is going on here and not just believe this set of lies that's been fed to us. And I just thought that article was such a brilliant doorway to open this discussion. And for so many women who have not had the tools or the opportunity to enter this discussion, read this article. It should be required reading for every woman. I'll just add, I, I wish she'd added a little bit more, like discussing a little bit more about these 
rules about five years and not taking it after 16, et cetera. But she did a really good job to be, you know, moderate and balanced. <laughs> My article probably would not be moderate or balanced. Uh, and that would turn off a lot of people. So as a result, this is probably going to win a lot of awards for being one of the best things ever written. Read it. It opens the door for you to take it to your gynecologist if you need to with your symptom checker and your list of demands because we work for you. If you come in and say, I want to take estrogen and progesterone and some testosterone because I want to feel better, what right does that physician to say you cannot? You cannot. That's that's inappropriate. Maybe based on their opinion, they'll review with you some pros and cons, and the cons are I'd like to know what they are because really they're very, very few, if any. The benefits are enormous. But, you know, you think about our freedoms in this country. We can be free to do a lot of things that are flat out harmful. We're allowed to smoke. We're allowed to drink alcohol. We're allowed to text and drive in most states, including Texas. I can carry a handgun in my purse and walk into a church or a school. <laughs> but you're going to tell me I can't take estrogen because of a 20-year-old study that doesn't even apply to me? That's just sort of comical. So we've got to think through these things as wise women who are advocating for ourselves. And I'm so glad, Sue Dominus, I hope you hear this. What a brilliant way to start this conversation. So I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please subscribe, share it with your friends, check out the links below so you can read the article. And also I'll include a symptom checker that we use in our office that you might want to use as a starting point to take to your own physician, along with telling them what you want, because you are in charge of your own body. Guess what? <laughs> That's the case here. We live in the United States. You are in charge of your own body not a doctor who hasn't read anything for the past 20 years or graduated after 2002. <laughs> so nothing wrong with that. But hey, we've just got to move on and live in the state of scientific fact and not all of this nonsense from the past. Please subscribe, share it with your friends. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the uh, interview that I did with Stacey London too. Don't forget to check out the last few spots of our retreat. That's going to be amazing in May. And I cannot wait to talk to you next week. Thank you.